I'll be reading from first chapter th- <coughs> excuse me, chapter three this morning. First Corinthians chapter three, beginning in verse one. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you again for the ministry that only you can have in our hearts and minds, and, and that, that we'd be taught of you, Lord, and would hear your words and respond, God, in faith, and that you would be free to accomplish in us, Lord, all that's true of you. So we're dependent on you, Lord, and acknowledge that as we come before you, Lord, to, to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me see you. <clears throat> Well, this um, extended section here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing that issue of divisions that he brought up in chapter 1, that party spirit where each one is saying they are of Paul or Peter or Apollos, some even saying they're of Christ. And he says that whole spirit of dividing around personalities is so contrary to the gospel where Christ died to himself. And yet we're elevating people. And they say it's just utter contradiction. And so in his thought process, as he's moved along here, he's brought us to what it really means to be spiritual. And he wants to just, again, level the playing ground at, at one level, at one, on one aspect, and saying that spiritual men are not simply those like Paul and Apollos. That every Christian is spiritual because he's been born again from above by the Spirit of God. So if you're a Christian, you're spiritual. We don't act like it all the time, and that's the reason for chapter 3. But he wants to establish that Paul, Apollos, Peter, all the apostles, none of them have any more of the Holy Spirit in them than any other Christian. We are all born again by the Spirit of God. We are all the work of the Spirit Therefore, we are spiritual. That needs to be established. It's from that truth that we get the doctrine of of the priesthood of believers, that every person has equal access to God. There are not some people who have greater access to Him. But we all know um, we don't behave consistently all the time with what we are. We are one thing, and we do another. That's the classic 
dilemma that Paul faced in Romans chapter 7. I do the very thing I hate doing. I don't do what I desire to do. And so we are not doing what we are. We are not being what we've become. And if the Lord Jesus has any master overriding ambition for you and I, it's that our being, (coughs) what we do, would match what we've become. So you can be spiritual and not behave spiritually. So chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. You are spiritual men. He's already established that. But I couldn't talk to you like you were. But rather, I had to speak to you as men of flesh, as babes in Christ. Now, there's a bit of uh, debate here about how many classifications of Christians that Paul is talking about. And it would seem, and most would agree, there are at least two here. There is the Christian who is a spiritual man, and there is a Christian who is a man of flesh. At least those two. And then he seems to define here in verse 1 the man of flesh as being a babe in Christ. And so there being a mature Christian and an immature Christian. Everybody would agree with that. And maturity and immaturity is a theme that's used in a lot of Paul's letters. But that doesn't quite get to the heart of it. Um, And so the next verse, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. You are still fleshly. And that introduces another word. It's it's a little slightly different word than men of flesh, fleshly. And and so some would say there's there's a fourth category of Christian. Um, I'm sorry, third category. You have have spiritually, he he is spiritual, or a babe, or fleshly. And I think that gets pretty close to what Paul is saying. So the four categories of people. Natural man is an unbeliever. Spiritual man is a Christian. But as a spiritual man, you can be spiritual, or you can be a babe, or you can be fleshly. Now, the reason this kind of gets in the weeds a little bit here is because a a babe is not functioning fully according to to the Spirit of God, not consistently. And that is also true for an older Christian who is not necessarily a young Christian, but he is still not functioning consistently according to the Spirit of God. One of the ways to know that that's true, actually two ways, is Paul saying, one, you can't handle the solid meat of God's Word. And secondly, there is still fleshly, there's still the indication of the flesh, there is still jealousy and strife among you. So those are two indications that a person is at least not mature yet, or they are functioning according to the flesh. Can't handle the meat. Well, that raises the question, what is the meat? And I tell you, you can pull all kinds of commentaries off the shelf, and, and, they, and most of them go in the direction that meat is things like solid doctrine. And there are a few, though, and I, and I, and I like what their thoughts are, that, that it's not so much solid doctrine, it's just 
because all the Christian life is solid doctrine. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is solid doctrine. And even a baby Christian understands that Christ rose from the dead. But it seems to be more getting to the heart of, of Christ being the Christian life and, 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 and the dynamic <coughs> of how the Christian life is lived. Because there's not one set of, one, there's not some scripture that is for the baby Christian and other scripture that's for mature Christians. All of scripture is for baby Christians and all of scripture is for mature Christians. But it's what we're doing with that and how deep we can go into what God has given us that would denote maturity. Fleshly characteristics are also denoted by jealousy and strife. Those two things, jealousy and strife, that he mentions in verse 3, are also part of the list of the fruit of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians. And he, and he even puts those two together in Galatians just in different order, reverse order. So as the fruit of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, is what's going on in Corinth, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he goes on to speak about what the fruit of the Spirit is. So, every Christian is spiritual, but not every Christian is behaving spiritually. A brand new Christian is a babe in Christ, but a brand new babe in Christ can live spiritually. He is young, he is immature but the fruit of the Spirit can be evidenced in his life. And how can the fruit of the Spirit be evidenced if he's not living spiritually? He's giving the Spirit freedom to operate in his life. So you don't have to be a Christian for 20 years to have the fruit of the Spirit made known in your life. A brand new Christian can and often does have the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in his life. In fact, Sometimes I think it's more evident in a brand new Christian than it is in somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years. Because that brand new Christian often is more inclined to realize how utterly dependent he is upon Jesus who saved him to also live this life. He can't live it on his own. And when you are available to the Lord, abiding in him, taking all that you need from him, then he is free to reproduce manifest himself through you. And you will see the fruit of the Spirit in a new Christian. But for whatever reason, we all know it's true. As life goes on, we tend to, to just revert back to relying upon our own knowledge and our own experience, our own abilities. And in doing so, many times unconsciously, we are not living from Christ, we're not evidencing Christ consistently in our lives, and we begin to see these things sprout up in our lives that we thought we weren't even capable of. These fleshly things of jealousy and strife and all the other things that Paul mentioned. And we become aware that they're just as real today in us as before we were even saved. It's troublesome. 
And so we wake up to the fact that we're not walking as we should. We're not behaving as we have become. We are fleshly. We are carnal. And the only solution to carnality is not to try harder. It's not to try and put it aside. But it is to come to Jesus, to Him and to the Holy Spirit who indwell us, and to come and say, Jesus, I want to live from you and not from myself. And when we do, not only does the fleshly fruit of jealousy and strife and all the other things, are they not going to be manifest in our lives, but we will find ourselves hungering for the deep things of God's word and having a greater understanding of those things. So, we are spiritual in position, all Christians. A young Christian may be immature by virtue of having not known Christ for very long, and in that sense, he is a man of flesh, a babe. But he can still see the Spirit working through him to, to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. A fleshly Christian is a carnal Christian who is consistently demonstrating the fruit of the, the deeds of the flesh rather than the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And a mature Christian would seem to be one who is consistently living in a state of dependence upon Christ over a period of time. <clears throat> when we live by faith in Christ, we won't demonstrate the fleshly behaviors because we aren't living according to or from the flesh, but we're living according to the Spirit. Romans 8 speaks about this as well. <clears throat> we learn what it means to live according to Christ. We have a lifetime of learning what that means. Anyone can at any time live according to Christ. And when he is do does, he is living as a spiritual man as the man he has become, not a mere man. But the, the mature Christian is one who consistently lives by faith in Christ. He is not necessarily an older Christian. So having established that, it's clear that we, can, we are called not to live as mere men. I find that quite challenging. It is a supernatural life. We are, we are human beings. But a mere man is a man or a woman who is living as though he has no need for Christ. A Christian living for all practical purposes as though he has no practical daily moment-by-moment -moment need for Jesus. He's living from his humanity. He's living as a man apart from God, as a mere man. And that is never what God intended for our mankind, for our humanity. So then Paul goes into speaking, brings it back to Apollos and himself. And I think in these next verses, really through the end of the chapter, he wants to get into what is the motivation 
other than obviously glorifying Christ and being pleasing to the Lord, what is the motivation for living as a spiritual man rather than as a mere man? So verse <coughs> 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? And Paul answers the question, Servants, just servants, through whom you believed. And even so that you'd not make sure that, that even, yeah, I, maybe you believe because of Paul, or maybe you believe because of Apollos. It was God who gave you opportunity to believe through them. So don't lift up Paul in Apollos. I planted, Apollos watered. Every person, in other words, has a different link in the chain in our story of faith. And I, I was in a class one time, I think in Bible college, and the teacher just put links on a chain. And he says, think about it. And he says, as you go through life, there are different individuals and different life experiences that form another link on the chain. You don't pull one, chain, one link out and say, this link was indispensable. They're all indispensable. They're all what God brought into our lives to bring us into greater conformity to Him. And you don't, you don't worship the link. But we turn to God who supplied. And Paul's saying, I planted and Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. And guess what? Only God can cause growth. So even when we're in a discipleship program or we're doing whatever we can to walk with him and to supposedly cause growth, humility recognizes, I can't make myself grow. Only God can cause growth. I can't make someone else grow. Only God can grow another Christian. I can't make my kids grow physically or spiritually. Can't make anybody grow. Can't make myself grow. Only God can do that. God causes the growth. Verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will, be, will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now this is going to introduce now this thought of reward and labor that's going to be very dominant here, especially in this chapter, but in other parts of Paul's letters as well. We are, he's going to use two metaphors here, God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. Fellow workers of God. Again, amazing that God would condescend to allow us to participate with him in what he is doing. But it's God's work. You are God's field, God's building. So he moves into the imagery of we being God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of it, each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built up remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So let me just stop here and make some observations about what Paul is saying here. He says, the building that he is speaking of, first of all, we need to be very clear in this chapter. It is not you and I. Okay? We are not the building individually. We, in this chapter, are not the temple of God. So in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's not talking about us individually. Chapter 6, he is. Look over at chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? In that passage, Paul is saying, each of us individually is a temple of God, but not in chapter 3. So in verse 16, the way we know that he's not talking about this is how he starts out, but, but especially here in verse 16, do you not know that you, this is you all, plural, are a temple of God? And so the plural you there shows that he is talking about all of us being a singular temple. So not only are we each individually temples, but collectively the local church is a temple of God. And it is the local church he's talking about here, not the individual. That's going to be very important for understanding what he's saying. So going back to verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So Paul was the one who, who, was, who planted the seed and they got saved. And along comes Apollos who builds on what Paul did. He's just changed the metaphor from an agricultural one to an architectural one. And so the agricultural, I planted and Apollos came and watered. Now the architectural, I put a foundation down and Apollos came and built on it. Okay? So it's just a different metaphor. But it's the same thing here. He's talking about the local Corinthian church. And not only is, has Paul built on it and Apollos built on it, but everybody in the church is building the church. That's pretty amazing. It's not just pastors and elders that are building in and on the foundation of the local church. You are. We all are, are doing, are constructing, are part of what is being constructed. So Bernie Bible Church is being constructed uniquely from any other church in the world. Because each of us are unique. And we, are, and we have a unique influence wherever we go. And so every church is unique. And every church is being constructed uniquely. According to the unique individuals who are in that church. And within any church at any given time, there are some people who are building up the local church with wood, hay, and straw. And there are other people in the local church who are building up the local church with gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what he's saying. Okay? That's the point here. And so he goes, what's being built? And so his point being, you people that are focusing on men... You are actually building with wood, hay, and straw upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. 
Whereas Apollos and I, not focusing on men, but focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ, are building with, with gold, silver, and precious stones. Be careful how you build, Paul said. And so this is, this is actually very, very important. So he says, verse 12, Now if any man builds upon the foundation, the foundation is Jesus, and the foundation is Jesus as the foundation of the local church, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Now this is probably, at, at, <coughs> at, the, at the minimum, a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. When everything we have done individually is going to be examined and be tested by fire. But really, we don't need to wait that long. Time itself is going to tell in the local church whether each of us was building upon Christ with gold, silver, precious stones or building with wood, hay, and stubble. Time will tell. And one of the ways that we know is what he's already said. Jealousy and strife. And if my life is characterized by jealousy and strife, then my contribution to the local church is wood, hay, and stubble. I don't have to wait to the beam of seed of Christ to know that. I can see that right now. Is my contribution to the fellowship of Christ, the local church that I'm a part of, more characterized by the works of the flesh or by the fruit of the Spirit? What the Spirit does is eternal. What Charlie McCall does is temporal. Even if there's not fleshly, if there's not the, the jealousy and strife, if I am the source of my activity, it will never be eternal. Because the works of God are eternal. Only God can accomplish what is eternal. And so what God is free to do as he works through us, we are the fellow workers of God. And if my life is yielded to him, and I am living in that abiding relationship with him, I will be functioning as a fellow worker of God. And what will be produced by God will be eternal. It's amazing they, what the things he's talking about here. Because God does the eternal. And we can be fellow workers with God as we simply trust God for what only God can do. And it's eternal. It's amazing. And then we get rewarded for what God did. That's why we'll never be able to boast in it. Because God did it. We can't boast in what God has done. We can't boast in our own salvation. It's the work of God. We will not be able to boast about the gold, silver, and precious stones because it's the work of God. We are fellow workers with God as we trust in Him and don't just live as mere men. You see how this all weaves together? If I'm living as a mere man, doing what I think is best for the local church, and so I initiate programs. I establish vision statements. I have mission statements. I'm doing what I think is best to cause growth in the church. It is doomed to be destroyed. Because we are living as mere men and not responding to the eternal God.
This is profound stuff. So how do you have a healthy church? Get out of the way. Really. If you think you can build God's church, you are sadly mistaken. Only God can build His church. But He uses us, co-workers with God. And, all he, and the only thing God can use is availability. That we, that we put ourselves at His disposal and allow God to work through us. And the evidence will be eternal. It'll be the work of the Spirit, not the work of us. It is, so it's going to all be tested. Not only will everything I do individually be tested <coughs> apart from the local church, <coughs> but in particular, everything that I have done in my relationship with the local church, it's going to be tested by fire. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But that doesn't mean loss of salvation. Hypothetically, and I mean only hypothetically, it is possible that a person can become a Christian and the foundation of Christ is laid in his heart. He is part of the local church where the foundation is Jesus Christ. And hypothetically, he can spend his whole life living as a mere man, not as a spiritual man. That the only explanation for his life is himself. And the Spirit of God never had the freedom to do anything in and through him. He is a self-made man. Esau was that kind of man. He had no need for God. And hypothetically, a Christian can live that way. And if he does, every single thing he did, no matter how good his motivations were, the only explanation for his life was himself, and there is nothing that we can do that is eternal, and so every single part of his life will be burned up. But he is not lost, because the foundation of Christ remains. Now, to use the emphasis here on the local church, it could be that everything that we do to the local church, in the local church, for the church, is a product of the flesh, and it's all going to be destroyed. But the foundation of Christ is there. And those individuals will not be lost. You can't lose your salvation. He himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. No reward you will suffer loss. I believe Scripture indicates that there will be a grave, deep sense of shame and grief. I don't think that's going to necessarily last for all of eternity. But there is going to be great shame and great disappointment when at the Bema seat of Christ, everything is judged and there is potentially nothing left after the judgment except Jesus. It's very sobering. And it becomes a motivation for not living a carnal, fleshly life. 
Because in this life, I mean, it, it kind of works. I mean, really, you know, there, there's, why do we continue in our fleshly behaviors? Any psychologist will tell you because you're getting something from it, right? It kind of works. So to be an angry, intimidating person, it works to some measure, right? Because people kind of walk wide, and they don't give you trouble. They're afraid of you. And so we, we, we sin because we get something from it. It's working for us. And it doesn't on the long run. So we have to elevate it a bit. The whole argument of why we shouldn't live a carnal, fleshly life. Take it out of this life to when we stand before Jesus in eternity. And it is quite possible we will stand there very ashamed because our life has nothing eternal to show for it. That will be a tragedy. And who wants that? And again, this is not about hiding and you know, being fearful of embarrassment per se. It's about the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. That we're going to stand before the presence of the one who loved us, who loves us, and who gave himself for us. And all he was asking for was us to trust him. And we refused. And as he examines our lives, there will be nothing eternal left. And we're standing before the one who gave his life for us and was completely available to us every moment of every day. And we said no. That's going to be the pain of the Bema Seat. He loves me. And I didn't love him enough to yield to him, to say yes to him. I want to be very careful with, these, with verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, he's speaking of the local church. The local church is a temple of God. And the, local of ch- the, and, the, and the Spirit of God dwells in the local church. That's also true for us individually, but his focus here is the local church. Now look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple, the temple of God. What is the temple of God in this context? The local church. If any man destroys the local church, God will destroy him. This is not a verse about suicide. See, if, this, if, if the temple here is the temple of our body, okay, now it becomes a verse about suicide. If any man destroys his body, if he commits suicide, God will destroy him, and now you've brought yourself into the loss of salvation. Right? Because one other destruction's left. If you've already destroyed your body, you've died. And so what more of a destruction could you face? Well, that other than losing your salvation. So that's why it's so important to understand the context here is not the individual being the temple. It is the church being the temple of God. And the context is saying that when individuals within the church consistently live as mere men according to the flesh, 
they destroy the spiritual nature of the local church. It is no longer a spiritual entity. It is just another social organization. Right? And that's been, for 2,000 years, we've seen that happen. Where good churches have slowly drifted, partly many times because of a love for the, for the lost, have drifted away from Christ and become humanitarian endeavors. And they have departed from their first love of Jesus Christ and in becoming humani humanitarian endeavors. It's not long before people look around and go, well, you know, the world's doing a better job reaching, taking care of humanity's needs than we're doing. Why do we even need this church? <coughs> and all over the world, we have churches the presence of churches that no longer exist today that used to be dominant in those countries. I think of Turkey, for example. Nothing like it used to be. When Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Revelation, he would warn them and say, your lampstand is in danger of being taken away. Why? Because a spiritual entity is no longer functioning according to the Spirit. And so for all practical purposes, those people are still saved. But for all practical purposes, the building that has been built is a work of flesh and not of God. And it cannot stand. It won't stand. And it is a not only a sobering thing to think that each of us is going to stand before Christ, we ourselves will not be judged, but our works are going to be judged. That is a sobering thing. And that the one who loves us and who gave himself for us and who is completely available to us may have nothing to show for his life that indwelt us because we never depended upon him. That is tragic. But there is also the warning that God may not wait until then. If any man destroys the temple of God, if there is an individual or, my, or more in a church that is responsible for the destruction of that church, again, meaning that that church is no longer a spirit-led entity, they are not responding to Jesus. They are not living in dependence upon Christ. God will destroy that man. I think this is the first of several instances in 1 Corinthians where Paul has gone to that lowest denominator of, of, of appealing to people for moral authority. Remember, the highest is, what has God said? And the second level is, what do your peers think? And the lowest level of moral development is what is this going to cost me? What is the pain? And this is the first of several instances where Paul says, you could die. God loves his church so much that if you are responsible for moving a church away from dependence upon Christ, you could die. Because if, if you destroy that church by making it simply another 
merely human institution rather than a spiritual entity. God will destroy you. I find that very sobering. We shouldn't just talk about praying. It ought to be the lifeblood for each of us. We shouldn't just talk about Christ being exalted. But we need to be serious about saying, I don't have the answers. And I can't cause the growth. We need Jesus. There's nothing we can do apart from you. We are a collection of people who are weak and foolish. And we need a head. And that head is not going to be a Paul or an Apollos. It is Jesus Christ. And we just live as weak and foolish people dependent upon the head, Jesus. As weak and foolish as we are, we are building with gold, silver, and precious stones because we're simply responding to the head. Amazing. And if we don't, not only will all that we do be burned up, but we are in danger if we destroy a local church. We are in danger of being destroyed, not losing our salvation. He's already said that foundation has been laid. You will be saved even if everything is lost. But we are in danger of coming under the discipline of God. Let no man deceive himself. Great next sentence. Let no man deceive himself. We should be thinking, asking the Lord, what kind of influence, God, are you having through me? And Lord God, I want it to be an influence that lasts for eternity. Gold, silver, and precious stones. <clears throat> I'll stop with that. I'll pray. Lord, this passage again um, is just... Um, penetrating and, and convicting for me. I don't want to be deceived, Lord. And we are all very capable of that. <coughs> it doesn't matter, God, how big this church is, how small. It doesn't matter. The one thing that matters, God, is that we are living from Christ and that what we have become is evidenced in what we are, in how we're living, what we're being, what we're saying, what we're doing. And I do pray, oh Father, I believe God that this is a special body and that you have kept it, protected it, prospered it in ways that only can be accounted for by what you have done. It's not our doing. We know, God, at any time, we can very subtly just resort to relying upon our experience, relying, God, upon our ability, and ignoring you, and truly presuming upon your grace. I pray, Father, that we would each be ambitious 
to live in dependence and at that judgment seat of Christ to have Jesus exalted and honored from that life of dependency. And we ask you, God, for your grace and wisdom to be directed by your spirit that we might each build within this body the church that you have established with gold and silver and precious stones. In Jesus' name, amen.